0: The passage in which today's teaching is based comes from the gospel according to Luke, <clears throat> and I'll be reading chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, let my brother uh, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain man, a certain rich man, produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take, it, take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. This is God's word. This passage is a hard saying. <clears throat> It's a hard saying because we live in a world today where people keep their wealth very close to their chest, much closer to their chest than than their sex lives or their drug use. But you need to know that Jesus talks way more about our wealth in the gospel according to Luke. That's how you spend what you own, your possessions, mercy, justice. He speaks much more about our wealth than any single topic in the gospel according to Luke other than himself, except maybe himself. Now, if you're visiting today, I want you to know I rarely preach about money. In fact, I did a quick search, and it turns out I only preached explicitly on the topic of money four times in the last 10 years. So I should probably preach more about money and the reason why is because at Metro, we believe that if you focus primarily on the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, if you focus enough on the gospel, it becomes clear that one of the direct applications of the gospel shaping your life is with respect to your money and how you spend it, your possessions, how you, what you own. But you can't ignore passages in the Bible where Jesus talks about money. And so I'm called to preach it. We're gonna do it twice in this series. I'm gonna hit this topic. So, if you're new, whether you're a believer, whether you're not a believer, whether you're exploring the meaning of faith in Jesus, we're gonna look at what Jesus today says about our relationship with our wealth. There are three things that we're gonna look into today. First, why do we need to hear these lessons on money? Two, why do we miss often lessons about money? And lastly, what are Jesus' lessons about money? Why we need to hear it? Why we often miss it? What are the lessons? First, we're gonna look at why do we need to hear it. Verse 13, somebody in the crowd approaches Jesus. And he says, teacher. Now, you gotta remember in the gospel according to Luke, Jesus is constantly talking about money. And so this man says, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In other words, I need you to settle a family matter for me. My brother is holding my share of the inheritance, and he won't give it up. It's an injustice. Notice, he calls him teacher. He calls him rabbi. You need to know that in ancient times, you didn't take civil lawsuits. You didn't take lawsuits like this to a judge. You went to a rabbi. You went to a rabbi who would apply biblical law to the situation and he would settle the case. But Jesus was actually not one of those types of rabbis. But because he's always teaching about wealth, he's always teaching about money, he's always teaching about greed, this man wants to use Jesus' authority to settle his family situation, his family matter. And what he's saying is, my brother needs to hear you. My brother needs to hear this. Now, that's a lot like us. It's It's a lot like us. Here we are, we're sitting, we're listening to a sermon. Once your mind starts to figure out what the sermon's about, one of the first things we often do is, I know a person who really needs to be here to hear this. This person needs to hear it. That person needs to hear it. Some of you are doing that right now. But the reality is, we're the ones that God called into the room to hear why do we need to hear lessons about money? And it's because giving lies at the heart of everything that a Christian is and everything he does in the end. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, famous passage. Whether you grew up in a church or not, the Apostle Paul, who the writer, the author of 1 Corinthians, he says that at the core of our motivations, at the core of our heart, at the core of our heart's motivations in doing anything is faith, hope, and love. What does that mean? Think about this. Why don't we give more? If you're thinking, well, if I give, will I have enough for myself at the end? At the root of that question is, will God provide for me? Will God take care of me? Is the gospel truly enough? Is Jesus truly sufficient? Is God's promise sufficient to take care of me? You see, the issue is not a lack of generosity. The issue is a lack of trust. The issue is a lack of faith. Now, why don't we give? Some of us say, well, because if I give, then I'm going to have less to spend. If we're honest, we're going to say I have less to spend on vacations, less to spend on my clothes, things that I want, eating out. And if I do that, I may fall behind socially. Look, the issue there is not a lack of generosity. It's a lack of hope. And because of a lack of hope, you're placing it in other things. Or maybe the reason why we don't give is because, hey, look, let someone else who actually cares more, who's actually burdened more, let, it's their responsibility. Let them give. This is the city's problem. I worked hard for what I earned. Those people out there didn't work that hard. It's their problem. That's not a lack of generosity. That's a lack of love. Giving sits at the heart. There are very few virtues, we call them virtues, there are very few character qualities that sit at the heart of all, the, uh, of, of all, at the root of all of Christian character. Giving sits at the heart of all the marks of Christian character. And, While there may be no real metric for your integrity, there may be no real measure of your faithfulness, giving is measurable. It's got bite, it's got teeth, it's got legs. In other words, where you put your money shows where you place your faith and hope and love beyond what your mouth actually professes. In a sense, giving reveals whether or not your faith, hope, and love are real. Beyond your talk, because in our day, people vote with their feet. People vote with their wallets. The entire range of Christian duty and responsibility and faithfulness revolves around loving God. You see, the disciples, they go to Jesus, and they say, what's the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says the second commandment is much like the first, similar to the first. Those are the two greatest commandments, he says. He says. So the entire range of Christian duty revolves around what? Loving God and loving your neighbor. And so you can't say you love God. You can't say you love your neighbor unless you're willing to vote with your wallet. And the only way you do that faithfully, the only way you can do that graciously, the only way you'll do that joyfully is if you believe that everything you own belongs to God. And so the church, right from its beginning, right from its institution, marked, was marked by a radical giving. Look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6. They gave and they gave and they gave and God added and he added and he added. Thousands, it says. Giving is the hallmark of the growth of the church. Now think about this. Why? It's because the God we serve The reality of God's cosmic generosity, his ultimate generosity is what? That famous passage, John 3, 16, baby. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That reality will never become real to the world until we see God working through our generosity. In Exodus chapter thirty-three to thirty-four, God comes to the people. He goes to Moses and says, "Look, I'll help you, but you will not see my glory." And Moses, who represents God's people, he says, "Please, we want to see all of you. We need to see all of you. I don't in other words, I don't want to know you. It's just a concept. I don't want to know you. It's just an idea." What does God say? Take off your ornaments. Relinquish your wealth. Lay your money, lay your wealth at my disposal. Why, why does he say that? What he's saying is, if you want me to give you all of me, if you want you to give you all of me, did I say that right? If you want me to give myself, all of myself to you, I want all of you. I want all of you. And this is why Jesus is constantly talking about our wealth. He's constantly talking about money because giving is more than just a good quality. It's more than just a good virtue. It's at the heart, at the root of all of our character. That's why we need to hear these lessons. Now, why do we miss these lessons often about money? One of the shocking things about this passage, in verse 14, you see it, Jesus actually refuses the man's request. It's not because he's not concerned about justice, it's not because he's not concerned about matters about mercy. He is always talking about justice. He's always talking about mercy. But he says this Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? What does that mean? On one hand, he's not saying he's not a judge. If you look, if you actually have a Bible and if you scroll down, later in that very same passage, in that very same chapter, Jesus says, I came to divide. That word divide is arbiter. I came to arbitrate. I came to divide. I came to judge. In other words, I have come as a judge, but I have not come to divide your land. I have not come to, to divide your wealth. I came to divide those who have a relationship with me from those who do not have a relationship with me. Either you will embrace me or you will reject me. Either you will love me or you will crucify me. So he's saying, I am a divider. I am a judge. I am an arbiter. But not the kind that you want me to be. So you can't come to me asking me to help you divide your inheritance. I am not your fund manager. I am not your financial uh, planner. I am not an estate planner. I am your king, he says. But if you come to me asking for anything without giving me everything then it's because you are serving another king and you don't really get me. You don't really get Jesus. Look, we do that all the time. We go to God, we pray asking for this and that. And usually when you appeal to God, you ask for the things that are the most important to you, the thing that you want the most. And it's and it's you do it it's the most private prayer you can pray. But how many of you pray submitting the things that are most important to you because your relationship with God is more important than those things? That's why we often miss him. We often miss him because we have so many other things that we hold and that we replace God with that we hold is more important than God. And you know why? It's because you still think that you own your lives. You still think that you control your life. And you go to Jesus as a result. You're just using Jesus to supplement, to improve your life. So Jesus in verse 15, he responds to the man. He says, watch out. Beware. Be careful. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, let me break that down a little bit. In the Greek, what he's saying here is, your life, your existence is not in your possessions. Your life, your identity, your existence is not in what you own. Jesus is saying, as king, I've come down to show that your life, your existence is not in what you own, your possessions, your wealth, because if you do find your life, if you do find your identity in your wealth, then your career owns you, your salary owns you, your bank account owns you, your retirement plan owns you. You no longer have a self, you no longer have an identity, you no longer have a life, you no longer exist in yourself. Do you get that? Notice, Jesus doesn't say, don't find your life in anything. Everybody's got something that they have found their lives in. Everybody has something that they exist in. And he's saying, I'm not going to give you everything that you pray for. I'm not going to give you everything that you desire because that will ruin you. Look, those of you parents, those of you who are on the live stream, parents, you give a a two-year-old everything that he wants? No. Why? Why? Because you're a bad parent? No, it's because you're a good parent. You want the child to live. You want the child to survive, to thrive. And God says, you are my child. I will do anything it takes to help you thrive and to help you mature. You place your life into that, it will ruin you. Jesus is saying, if you put your life in other things, someday, all these other things, they're going to sink And if you're tethered, if you're anchored into these things, when they sink, you will sink. So Jesus says to this man, you want this inheritance, but we're all sitting on a bubble. And one day that bubble is going to burst. By the way, Ernest Becker, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, wrote probably one of the most insightful books. His, His greatest work is The Denial of Death. Basically what he's saying is that the reason why we're so frantic, the reason why we're so anxious and driven by wealth and sex, careers, drugs, we self-medicate, relationships. You know why? It's because we know we're sitting on a bubble. Deep inside, we know one day that bubble's going to burst. And so we're looking for ways to either cope with it, escape it, that reality, that truth, to protect ourselves from it. But Jesus says you can't. You can't. It's all coming to an end. This is Jesus, the creator, the king of the universe. And he says the show is almost over. And there's no escape unless you submit to Jesus as king. Now, I want to remind you, Jesus never says, he never says to a person when they come to him, give me all your money. I'm not saying that. Jesus doesn't say that. Let's be clear. Why not? Because he knows that if you give all of your wealth before you actually give Jesus your life, you're still on the bubble. You're still in the bubble, and you're coming to Jesus as just another way to cope, another way to escape. You're still using Jesus as a way to get out. And it's not always direct. Maybe some of you give to the church, but some of you give to just charity or to the homeless through community service, through social justice, but you're still trying to do your part so that, in a sense, God kind of owes you. That is still being on the bubble. That's the death. Because Jesus isn't here to bargain with you. He is the king. It's not your money he needs. He's the king of the universe. He wants you. We often miss these lessons because we've looked and hooked our lives into other things, and those things have become our king. What are the lessons, then, What are the lessons about money that we need to hear? This particular passage is about money, this man's life. He's built his life around money. How do we know that? I mean, how can you tell by reading this passage? It's because he's willing to break up his family. In the ancient times, your family was your priority. Today, it's wealth that defines us. It's status that defines, it's wealth that defines your status or your reputation, your place in the world and society. But in the ancient times, it was your family. They didn't have no internet back then. They didn't have cars back then. They didn't have bikes back then, right? I don't think, right? And so all they had was who you had around you your local vicinity, the people in your most, in your locale. That was all you had. And so family and relationships were critical in your life. You were defined by your family. But this man, he's willing to sacrifice his relationship with his brother for his wealth. It was an inheritance, so his parents were probably passed, right? All he's got is his brother. He's willing to sacrifice his relationship with his brother for his wealth. And Jesus is basically calling him a fool in verse 20. It only happens twice in all the Gospels where Jesus calls somebody a fool, and one of those is in this passage. Very harsh. The word fool in the Bible, it reflects somebody who's not just unwise. That's not what he's saying. It's a much harsher word than that. It's somebody who's become irrational to the point where he's out of touch with reality. And yet it goes even deeper because it reflects somebody who has rejected God's definition of reality. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, Sin is like insanity. This person has rejected God's definition of reality and so he has become spiritually blind. What does that mean? When you're physically blind, you can't see objects that are right in front of you because your eyes have gone dark. And so you can't tell if something is good or bad. You can't tell if something is is safe or dangerous. And so you stumble, you get hurt. But what makes you spiritually blind is not just just that you just can't see the spiritual dangers in your life, it's when somebody tells you, tries to show you the danger, you reject it. That is the type of fool that Jesus is talking about. Wise people are telling you, warning you, cautioning you. If you go into this, this is dangerous for you. And we find so many ways to justify why it's not a danger, why we're different, why the circumstance is different. You know why? Because in our blindness, we think we see in 3D, and those everybody else that's talking to us looks in one dimension. You see, that's why. Jesus rejects this man's request. warns us, Regarding our greed and then proceeds to tell a story about a man who's blinded by his wealth in verse 16 You see a farmer He's grown rich Clearly a good farmer and also fortunate because his land produced. What does he do? He looks at everything he has and he says I Know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna tear down the storehouses. I'm gonna big builder ones Build bigger ones Jesus saying now this person, he's falling for it. It's not enough that he's grown wealthy because of his overproduction. He's now investing much more deeply. He's much more tethered now to his wealth. He's now starting to lose the sense of reality that all of this he didn't create that land. He didn't. He didn't create in a sense, his wealth, the land produced for him. He might have worked hard, tilled the land, but who gave him that land, that particular plot that produced so well? He's forgetting the reality that all of this is a gift. And now what he's doing is, this is all he sees. I gotta build, I gotta build, I gotta build. This is all there is to life, wealth building and saving. And so in verse 19, It's almost ridiculous. All the parables have this kind of ridiculous portion that kind of shocks the listener. In verse 19, he's speaking to his soul. And he says, now you can take life easy. It's like Scrooge McDuck jumping and diving into a pile of money. Take life easy. Enjoy because you've saved. You see? He's speaking to his inner soul. This is what you need. Notice in verse 18. He says, I'm going to store up all the grain. I'm going to store up all the goods. Everything. In other words, he rejects what saving is doing. Saving everything is doing to his spiritual character. It's not so much about, this is not a passage about don't save. This is a passage about the man saying, I'm going to keep it all. He doesn't give. He's not generous in his heart. He's rejecting. He's failing to see what saving everything is doing to his character. And so his eyes are now narrowing to only what is material, only what is tangible for himself. You see, Jesus doesn't say don't ever save. There is a physical world. But Jesus is saying that this man's wealth has become everything for him. And he's rejected the priority of his spiritual life, his spiritual character. And Jesus is saying, that is a fool. What was he blind to? What did he overlook here? What did he overlook? God says, here it is. You save tons. Literally, I mean, this man at storehouses, you save tons. But tonight, you are going to die. In the actual Greek, it's implied this way. It's as if God is speaking to this man and he says, I know you think you're rich, but you forgot something. You're actually bankrupt because you owe me a debt the size of your life. And tonight, I will come to collect. You were sin debt will cost you your life. And there is no amount of work that you've done, there's no amount of money that you saved that can pay that debt. You see, this man's wealth has made him so myopic, such a narrowed vision, and he's grown blind. Because he's got. he's grown blind, you know what happens? He's got the spiritual diabetes, and so he's gone blind. It's because he's fat with his wealth. And now he realizes he can't take any of that wealth with him. But if you invest in other people, if you invest in God's people, the wealth multiplies, it advances, it grows, as kingdom. You see, the great, uh, uh, you see, uh, Martin Luther once said something like this. Uh, Martin Luther, the great theologian, he said, today in the world, uh, we are stingy with our wealth and promiscuous with our bodies when we should be promiscuous with our wealth and stingy with our bodies. Yes, you need to save some. But the more that you invest in other people, the more that you invest in God's kingdom, you start to see with God's eyes, you are living into God's view of reality. This is not a rich man talking to you. I didn't grow up with much. But I can tell you, I can tell you that what's killing our culture and society today is the need to build and redefining what it means to advance and grow. And that's exactly what's going on here. Look, if this world is all there is, then yes, sex isn't a big deal, and money is everything. But if if there's a greater reality than this world, then sex is a very big deal, and money is not. Today, talk about sex is easy. We're very loose when it comes to sex. But talk about money, people get tight-lipped. Money is sacred. Money is set apart. Money is treated as holy today. It's almost become the key to, to life, life for us, real life. And Jesus is saying, that is blindness. That's not really real. And it doesn't, money doesn't just blind you to spiritual danger. But it blinds you to what it really takes to grow, what it really takes to build. The world says you build through accomplishments, accumulation, saving. The Bible says you don't build by storing up. You build by emptying. You don't build by taking. You build by giving. You don't build by saving. You build through your generosity. You don't build by investing in yourself. You build by investing in other people. This is not just a battle for your heart. I know that your heart, you're like, oh, wow. We talked about this already. Faith, hope, and love. This isn't just a battle for your heart. It's a battle for what you believe is reality. It's a battle for your sanity. Which world is really real? Rich reality do you really live in? Jesus says at the end of verse 21, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. In other words, if that's your view of reality, I need to work and build and accomplish and build, you will die in your foolishness because you are not rich toward God. You are still, you are spiritually bankrupt. That is a fool. Now, the world isn't going to say that to you. The world's going to say, no, that's foolish. That thinking is foolish. Look, to the world, Jesus Christ on the cross is the ultimate fool. Why? Because who had everything? Who had all the honor? and the power, and the glory, and the wealth. It was Jesus. And yet, in Philippians chapter 2, it says, instead of trying to grasp for more, equality with God, something to be grasped, instead, Jesus chose to empty himself, bankrupted himself. The world says, that's foolish. People said, get down from the cross if you are who you say you are. On the cross, Jesus demonstrated the ultimate filling through emptying, the ultimate glory through humiliation, and so he became poor. He wasn't even born in a normal place, setting, right? He was born in a manger. He was born poor and homeless. Why? Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Jesus Christ, for your sake, though he was rich, he became poor so that you, through his poverty... Might become rich. What does that mean? On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate emptiness. The Son of God, He was the true heir, the heir to the throne, the heir to heaven, the heir of God, the heir to the universe. He is king, and yet He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What He's saying is, Because I've lost the Father, I've now lost the inheritance. I've given up my throne, my status, my reputation. This is the ultimate. Bankruptcy. This is the ultimate poverty. And there is no judge to arbitrate here. The judge, the ultimate judge, has turned his face away from me. And so now I am suffering the ultimate injustice. Yet do you know? Here's this man, comes to Jesus. Settle this matter for me. He's so angry. The Bible says Jesus emptied himself gladly. The richest, most powerful man to have ever walked the earth And yet he gave up his wealth, gave up his status, gave up the throne. He gave up everything. He obeyed perfectly, was completely generous. And yet that day, God says, your life will be taken away from you. Jesus Christ became the ultimate fool so that we could be wise in him. Not because he owed anything. Let's make that clear. Jesus Christ didn't owe anything. It wasn't because he owed any debt, it's because he chose to pay the ultimate debt for us our sin. Because of his love, his generosity was tied to every part of his character. That means Jesus gave up his status so that we could have status. He gave up his reputation so that we could have a reputation in him, an everlasting reputation. He gave up his wealth, ultimate richness, so that we can be heirs, children of God in him. And to the degree that you believe this, that Jesus Christ held you as his treasure, You would die for your treasure. He held us as his treasure to the degree that you believe that Jesus Christ becomes your treasure. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be held by his nail-pierced hands. Every other religion says, you need to build. You need to work. You need to accomplish. You need to strive. You need to save up for yourself. It's just another way of storing up so that you can say, I deserve to get in. Only a Christian says no. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. To the degree that you believe that. You can be totally wealthy. You can be extremely wealthy. But you can say that means nothing without Jesus. Your attitude toward your wealth will change. Because you know that everything you have has been given to you by sheer grace, and you will live out of that gratitude. Yes, you will work hard, but not to build yourself. You already have a self. It is firm and established in your identity in Jesus, what he's done and who he is. You will not build yourself but to honor God and his kingdom. That is our calling. And how do you know that? Your wealth no longer defines you. Your wealth no longer controls you. You can give. Look, in the Bible, first of all, the tithe is considered you know, 10%, traditionally known as 10% of your income. Your tithe, the tithe is known as, uh, is, is oftentimes <clears throat> nuanced. You know, sometimes it's 10%, sometimes it's 10%, and then there's more. And yet, sometimes it's the widow who gives two two pennies, right? The reality is that 10% of anybody's salary is a lot. You say, well, I don't make as much as that guy. Well, yeah, you're saying 10% to me is a lot. But 10% of that rich guy is a lot to him too. You see that? To the degree that you believe in the gospel, you can have a little or a lot, but it means nothing without Jesus it will change your attitude towards your money because money no longer rules you. In the end, you're only going to give to the degree that you are grateful. If you believe, man, I've earned everything. Do you know how hard I worked to get here and how long it took to get here? Then you're going to believe that you deserve, what you're saying is you deserve everything that you have. You're never going to give. But if you're wise, if you're not that biblical fool, you're going to say to yourself, but who gave me my job? Of all the people that could have been selected by this school, of all the people that could have been selected by that opportunity, I've received it. It is a gift of sheer grace by God. More and more scholars say that even your intelligence is not something you acquire but much of it, a lot of it, has been passed down to you. God happened to knit you together that way and he gave that to you. Who gave you your job and your opportunities, your relationships, your home, your intelligence? You're gonna say, the Lord gave this to me and he gave me even more, he gave me his own son. He gave me new life and God spared no expense. Every time I look at the cross, I see the empty tomb, but I see an emptied Christ. We say we pray for the things that we, we want the most in our private prayers. What did Jesus pray for? He prayed for God's glory, and he prayed for you. He prayed for you. You are God's treasure. You. Jesus gave up everything. It was worth it. He was glad to do it because you were the treasure. And if you see that, it will melt your heart. You're saying, well, how do I give out of gratitude? That will melt your heart into gratitude. You will see that you are rich beyond compare already. You will see that through God's lens and no longer be blind. See Jesus. Look at Jesus on the cross, giving up his status for you, giving up his reputation for you giving up his throne for you, giving up everything, the Father for you. He tithed not just 1%, not just 10%. He didn't sit there with a the calculator and say, okay, what's the limit that I can give? He gave everything. He tithed his body and his blood for you. That's what love does. And he gave it gladly. Will you then give gratefully? Will you then give graciously live freely as we come to the table let's reflect on the goodness and provision the wealthy provision of jesus for our sakes let's pray